Good morning. How are you? Happy Sunday. Um, I am so sorry if you are a UCLA fan. The smile is, it's sadness for you. And, um, and uh, I'm upset because my two Michigan teams lost and and now I'm rooting for I can't believe in number 15 to go all the way. So if you do not follow NCAA tournament, that's uh, your loss. Uh, March Madness is my favorite, favorite time of the year. Uh, plus there's Easter too, so <laughs> it's all in the same time. I love it. Um, well, I want to welcome you if you're new. My name is Ryan Grable. Uh, I am the lead pastor here. If we haven't had a chance to meet or even just catch up and it's been a while, um, I would love to get a chance to chat with you, talk with you, um, and I always want to offer this out there. If any of you, <clears throat> I think based on some of the messages that I've been hearing feedback in, I, I want to encourage you, if you're, if you're in a point in your life where if you're struggling in a way that is um, overwhelming in a way, and you need you know, others to share your burden, obviously we have our life groups uh, but if you're not connected within our community in any way like that and you're needing someone, please reach out to myself or Chad. Uh, we're here to, um, to, to connect you, love on you, help you, and just be someone to be a set of ears for you and pray with you. So um, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, I don't do that enough, but I want you to know that, that um, you know, you're not alone and you don't have to go out alone and you don't have to uh, take on some of the struggles alone. So um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, we love you. We thank you so much uh, uh, for, for your word, for what we're learning in Luke, and for these messages that Jesus is teaching. Uh, like last week, God, that we walk out, we realize we have a purpose. We have a plan, and God, that you've given us gifts and talents and to steward them. And God, there's no greater thing we can do on this planet than to use our gifts and our talents for you and for your glory and to bring about your kingdom. We love you, God. And in this today, I ask that none of us walk out the same. We see you differently today. We see who you are, who Christ was in this passage. And God, help us not to miss who Christ is personally to us, and who you are, and what authority you have in our life. Help us not be distracted, and we know who we belong to. In Jesus' name, amen. Is anybody just a little, you don't have to raise your hand, anybody just a little bit rebellious towards authority? You don't like being told what to do, you know what I mean? <laughs> You're pointing at Dennis, Wow. What a great wife and daughter. Okay, that's nice. I, I, I think I just naturally, I, I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up in the grunge era. You, anybody feel me? It, it was just one of these things where you, you just, you don't want, you don't like authority. And I, I grew out of that in a, in a way, but I think I always had that little twinge of like when someone's telling me to move my car, I'm like, I don't want to move my car. You know, it's that first initial thought that you have to fight and be like, no, I, I'm, I'm going to move my car. You're right. It, it's, it's a little bit of an authority issue thing. I think with God, I've, I've even had moments where it's like, I don't want to do that. Now everybody's silent, right? Now I don't want to do that. It's just a little bit of like, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do that, God. You know, a little bit of a rebelliousness against authority sometimes can translate into the ultimate authority in our life, and we have to be very cautious of that. Does anybody wish that they had more authority, a little bit more control of your life? And I think that's what authority can feel like to people. If I have more authority, I can feel like I have more control over my life. But in a way, the more authority that we have, the less authority sometimes we will let God have. Because we, we need to feel comfortable. We need to control our lives, right? And I had, I had this other question, which is, anybody ever struggle with who really is in charge of your life? I think that that can be a struggle sometimes daily. Sometimes it can be <clears throat> just an overall issue of who actually is in control of my life. Is it me? Or is it others? Or is it God? And I think when God is in control of your life, when God is the authority in your life, 
your life looks a little different. We do and don't do things when the authority of God is in the right order in our life. And that the struggle all the time is to unseat God as the authority in our life or Christ as the seat on our heart and then put ourselves there or even, sadly, even worse, others there. And there's this wrestling match for authority over our lives and in our lives. But I think that when we think about authority, when I think about the authority all around me, even my sometimes like quick reaction to want to rebel against any authority, I'm not fighting people. I'm not fighting structures. I'm not fighting physical authorities over me. The Bible says that our fight is spiritual. I'm not winning any battles for God when I'm being rebellious against authority in a way. You know, I don't r r roll over if something's immoral and unjust. But there's something about that that I have to remember. Even when I'm facing somebody and I'm having a hard issue with them or a boss at work or anything. I'm not fighting in a way them. I'm fighting a spiritual battle and not that they're the devil, but I'm fighting a spiritual warfare about humility in my heart. And sometimes we are in the world fighting a spiritual warfare even when we feel like there's an, there's a, there's an evilness about what's happening. We're fighting a spiritual battle. So I never want to, or any of us, especially even when we read scripture, to demonize a person because you could in this passage. To actually go, this is person is bad and evil to the core when our battle is a spiritual and a fallen world battle of which we're called to bring light. So we never just other a person in that way. And I don't think Jesus did that, and I don't think he would have us do it either. I titled this message, The Ultimate Authority. How Jesus, in these passages we're going to read today in chapters 20 and chapters 21, and these two passages kind of summarize these two chapters well. They're kind of the, 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 the deepest meat of the passage, if you will. How he speaks to power and how Jesus speaks to his labor force. How Jesus speaks to power. And he is directly speaking to power in these and how he speaks to the labor force. Now, to catch you up on where Jesus is at, he is made his way from Galilee. He is making his way. He's past Jericho, which is 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. He has now entered into Jerusalem, and he has a following, like a big one. In a way, to the, to the people all around, the regular old folks of the, uh, of the area, he is starting a movement. And he's on his way, and no doubt the temple... Uh, priests and all the religious leaders and the authorities in Jerusalem have heard about him and are probably very scared that he is making his way to the capital, if you will, the power of re the religious order. And they're taking it all in. They're listening to what Jesus is saying. He's speaking something different. All they know is a Roman Empire. All they know is Caesar is the son of God. Uh, his father, Augustus, right? All they know is this type of language. All they know is power and suppression. All they know is religious rituals that maybe don't even connect them with God anymore, but drive them further away and, and, and away from who they are to God. And all they know, and they hear this message that Jesus teaches, and something is very different. Enough for them to go into the desert, enough for them to leave and travel and follow Jesus and hang on every word. They were desperate people. I feel like I'm no different than them. I was a desperate man by the time that Christ came into my life. I was a very desperate man. I, the world had betrayed me, and Christ came with something different, and it felt right. And I've been following him since. You know, he's in there, and he's teaching, and he's upset the temple process. And you're going to hear it where he's actually going to directly face the power of the temple and the power of the religious uh, rule in, 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 the, in the entire region, but also in the city. And this is more about power and authority and a lot less about an individual as he is confronting it. But he has flipped these tables and he walks in and says, what, he could probably speak this way, what I have established for you, you have turned into a den of thieves. You're hurting people here. 
you are not leading my people. What have you done with what I've left you? This is exactly how he feels. And he starts to teach at this temple steps. Now this would be like someone going and leading a revolution, teaching at the capital steps in our country. It's not comfortable for anyone who's working in the capital, right? It's not comfortable for anyone in that system. They're very uncomfortable when they're hearing teaching about calling out corruption, if you will. So he's doing this very thing here, and I can imagine it is causing quite a stir. But the powers that be, they couldn't take it anymore. They had heard enough, and they had had enough. He is now putting into compromise their entire power system. And he is challenging authority in a way that has never been challenged from within, and it is powerful. Luke 20, let's read the very first how it kind of starts out. This is how the fight gets picked, if you will. Luke 20, verse 1 and 2. It says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Now, I think Luke specifically puts this in here because he is teaching the good news. And the good news meant freedom from any kind of oppression, spiritual oppression that, that you may have on you. Freedom from any dominion and power that has a hold of you. It is a threat. The gospel is a threat to any, any body of power that wants to maintain its power. Because the gospel does something special and unique. It connects you directly with your creator. The gospel sets you free so that this world is, is in a way, nothing compared to eternal life. It, it puts things into proper perspective, and the gospel sets you on mission to renew and and. and for God to reclaim and recapture the world. And when God rules in this world, all other power structures don't remain. So they're threatened by that. So the gospel brings that. The gospel, when it entered my life, threatened my system. Right? We were, I was just talking with someone here outside about, like, uh, I'm, I'm really... Uh, having my faith be tested and my kindness and care be tested because I'm riding my bike to work now and, um, you know, inflation, save some money and <laughs> burn some calories. And uh, people are really testing my patience out there. Uh, they really, really, really love to um, um, almost kill me. And so that, that's becoming a problem. And I, inside I'm just like, want to just be furious. And then I'm just like, this is good for you just to be like, Whoever you are, I hope the best for you. Just don't, I hope you never drive by me again. And it really has tested my uh, uh, anger and patience with that. But you know what? The, it does. The gospel confronts our system. So at an individual level, it's subverting your, the nature that is not really who you are, but the nature of which is in you in Christ. But in the power systems of the world, it does the very same thing, so it's a threat. So he's preaching the gospel. The chief priest, now you may not know the temple structure, but there are 24 priests who are continually working at all times to keep the uh, rituals going and the traditions going and sacrificial system going. And, and then there are these chief priests who oversee these 24. And so they're very powerful in the temple system. And then you have the scribes, and we think like scribes as people who just write things down. No, these are the legal scholars of the law of that day. They are the ones, I think, ultimately, who, if you could think all things legal and law, that's what they do. And them, in combination with the chief priests, run the temple and the priests and how they conduct it. And then there's this other group in here called the elders. With the elders, right? And the elders, these people are the most prominent families in all of Jerusalem. And these are the elders who represent these prominent families. So this is a power system. And Jesus has arrived on their doorsteps and they've been dreading this moment for a long time. Some would say that they are considered, this three-part power structure, are the guardians of tradition. And so he is now coming up against the tradition. And it goes on to say, it, he came up, they came up and said, to Jesus, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Which sounds like, wow, they're curious. But the second question is the tell. And who gives 
Or who is it that gives you this authority? Now, we are the guardians of the traditions. We are the authority that says what goes and doesn't go. Who gives you this authority? Now, this creates an unbelievable two chapters of Jesus, um, how do I say, going off. <laughs> Very much worth the read. I would say that one of the parts that stands out the most will be coming up in Luke 20 and, 19, and 9 through 18. But ultimately, they're going to him asking the creator, because the Bible says Jesus was in the beginning. He was the word of the words of God, and the word was God, right? In the very beginning, before Abraham was, I was, Jesus says. In the beginning, right? And they're asking the creator, who gives you the authority to be here? I think it must have been comical to Jesus. I can't imagine, like, like uh, um, I, don't, I haven't had it yet where someone has come up and tried to kick me out of our property here, but I would be laugh of like, no, 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 I, I, work, I, work, I work here. You can't kick me out of here. It would be really funny to me. I, I can't imagine Jesus at his scale not, not thinking this is crazy, Right? He's thinking a little bit more probably like, you guys are actually squatters, you know. This is my land. This is my world. And you're coming here squatting, and you're telling me you own the place. You don't. They don't have the authority structure right. They don't realize and have a revelation that we have that Jesus is the ultimate authority. But the problem is, is I think sometimes what we can learn from this is not just looking at those, those religious leaders, but we have to look at ourselves and go, do we hold Jesus in that place? Or is he conveniently the leader, ultimate authority, when we need him to be? But when he's not, he's just this guy going around saying stuff in our life that we don't like. So the first part here in Luke, and I'll put this as like maybe the main thought to be thinking of, is this is a little bit, this is about Jesus' authority. God's authority, but it's also, at the very end, it really is a parable about kingdom laborers. The people God has entrusted to labor on his behalf to represent God. I would say this, God desires true laborers to cult his, cultivate his land. That's who he's looking for. And this parable is about those who have lost track of the land the, the authority God has given them. And they are not doing this for his glory anymore. And we have to put ourselves not in the shoes of the landowner, not in the shoes of the son, or not even in the shoes of the messengers, which we'll read about. You have to place yourself in the shoes of the tenants, who are these people who have lost their way, and we must always be careful not to become them. Luke 29 through 18, it says, And he began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard, and let it, out, let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, this was very common in, in the practice of those days. The law says that if you lend someone out a field, you had to give them five years to cultivate the land enough to pay you back because you couldn't just come right back and be like, where's my, uh, where's my pay? You had to give them time, and then you come back. So this is very reasonable that the landowner would give them time. He also is referencing something that everyone there would have recognized, and it was a reference to Isaiah as God is this landowner, this planter of this vineyard. So this language is very closely tied, and they would have heard this and said, ooh, you're speaking of Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't say exactly the best thing, so they might know what's coming here. Now remember his audience, they're the... The, the triad, if you will, of tradition. They're there. The power structure and the people are there. These are his audience as he is talking. But let's read a little bit of Isaiah 5 so we get some context. I'll read two parts of it. And this is God as a planter. This is back in Isaiah as one of the prophets. And he was heavily persecuted. And he was driven out by, ultimately, and driven around by a corrupt leadership within Israel. And this is what it says about God after he planted it, and he uses this analogy. When God looked around, this is verse 4, and I looked out into, uh, to yield the grapes he had planted. Why did it yield wild grapes? This isn't what I planted. This isn't what I intended. 
He asked the question twice in Isaiah 5. And then he begins to just tear the whole thing up and says, I'm uprooting these grapes because they're growing not what I intended them to be. And verse 7, it gives the example of what he's talking about. And this is in Isaiah 5. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There's the analogy. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, hoping to see what he planted he would be reaping. But behold, it was bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, it was an outcry. They have lost track of what God had them for. They have gone off the purpose. And they are now bringing the exact opposite of what God wanted for his vineyard. They abused, they neglected people, and they, didn't care for, they did not care for them. They lost their purpose of what God planned it to be, and they literally looked like something God didn't even intend for them to be. So now let's go back to the parable. So they kind of feel Isaiah 5 here. It says, when the time came, right, he had went off for a long time, and the time came, he sent a servant, a loyal messenger, to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this isn't a big ask. This is just like, hey, let's just see. Let's see the product. Let's have a little bit. Let me have some of that. I'll let you have it for five years, essentially, rent-free. But the tenants beat him, and they sent him away, and they empty-handed. And, uh, empty and they sent another servant, but they also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Now, this is where we start to see, oh, wow, God is extraordinarily patient. This is the very heart of God. He is very patient. He's very patient with you. He's very patient with me. And he's very patient with those who are in even authority in Israel at that time. And God has been very patient. It's not that his patient runs out. It's just that it's time for the next plan. So in verse 12, he sent yet a third. And he was also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? You know what? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. This is, this is a sad parable because Jesus is ultimately foretelling what will happen to him. He knows what is in store for him. It doesn't matter who the, the father sent their way. They wanted their way. So much so that to get their way and even more, they would kill for it. And it just says something about what the kingdom has come to overturn. What it has come to destroy within sin nature. That nature to have more take for itself and, that, and choose themselves as authority over God's authority. And I think about this. I think, man, Jesus goes into our world. And I, I just started thinking of things I listed off to myself. What are the things that Jesus did everywhere he walked? I felt like he, everywhere he walked, life was sprouting out in the desert like that old prophecy that he's just everywhere he's going there's water and dry land it's just and, and, and things are growing all around Jesus he's bringing life you would think that everyone would cheer and be grateful for what's happening when Jesus think of what he did he helped people he healed people he fed them he forgave them he loved the he loved the outcast he connected people with God for who God really was and who they were to them he brought salvation he spoke of a kingdom and hope I mean, who would love this guy? He's the greatest motivational speaker, philanthropist, and Mother Teresa of all time in one. And here's what he was met with by the system's response, if you will, a fallen world in fallen systems. Mockery, verbal judgment, fighting, scheming, deception, betrayal, physical torture, a cruel execution. And the sad thing is, I think they went to sleep really well that night. You know, my heart breaks, I think, when I see those, that contrast because we, we all want to think that the world needs and wants more good, but there are forces that don't want good. It hurts the power structure. There are forces who don't want all boats to rise because it hurts the power structure. And this is exactly what's happening right here now in this time. And I think we always have to guard our heart to be pulled into that system. 
where we, where we don't care about the other, where we only think of our own gain, where we, we, we make ourselves righteous, and we don't uphold all standards to the standard of the ultimate authority. This is very short-term thinking, and it's a short-term loss. There is no gain, and it's a long-term loss that we don't want to pay. Verse 14, And when the tenants saw him, the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. It's funny, a couple, uh, another couple stories over, or right after the story, sorry, the scribe, the elders, and the chief priests all talk to each other, and they're talking like, I think this parable is about us. And you're like, uh, yeah, this is right about you. Yes, you are plotting to kill Jesus. He is really quoting you verbatim here. It's funny because uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a sermon and the pastor is speaking and you're going, oh my gosh, he's speaking directly to me. And then you put your head down. You're like, don't look at me, don't look at me. <laughs> I used to be that way when I was in church and I was definitely in sin. And I'd be like, you're talking about it and now you're looking at me. Oh, he sees it. Oh, don't tell my mom. You know, like, I feel like they, they, they could feel what's happening, that Jesus sees what's going on here. And wants to speak to the power that they have. And it says, and after they had uh, said these things, that they could get the inheritance, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then, Jesus asked, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? I feel like when he asked that question, he's engaging his audience now into this parable. He's really asking, what should they do to him? I don't know if you're like me, but I like watching movies where there's a really, 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 really bad guy. And he seems to just always be winning. Do you know the movies I'm talking about? You're like, he's always winning. But then at the very end, when it finally comes his way, and it's usually a rough ending for this person, inside, are you not like, oh, I'm so glad that's over with. Justice. Are you not like that? And if they ever have somebody who is like that, that wins in the end of the movie, you are troubled and bothered by it. We want justice. We don't like evil. Right? And so he's asking, what should you do? What, what should he do? And I'm sure everybody there is like us, like, well, I, and he should send all of his men and go get those guys out and put them in cuffs, you know, minimum, a stern warning, you know, I don't know, kill them. I think that this, he's asking people to come into this story for a minute to say what an injustice it is that this world can be to someone who wants good, who is only coming to do good, but the power structures will not do it. They will not allow it. I have a question after this is what, what do we, sorry, do we practice injustice in any way in our life? It's so easy for me to go, I wouldn't, of course I would never kill anybody. I wouldn't beat somebody if they were trying to collect money. But what a, that's the great high level, that's the hugest analogy, but what about the injustices that we do in our own ways? We have to go all the way into the story that way. We have to be invited into the story in that same way. And how bought in are you that God is in the ultimate authority in our lives. That will make a big difference on how you view injustice and justice. Who is the ultimate authority? Who is always looking? And who will always bring justice? You know, I said this a couple weeks ago, but at the end of the day, I have to remember, even though that person tried to run me over the other day, and I'm coming to do God's work, I guess I could say that, right? Um, at the end of the day, any kind of injustice I do or the way I act, I'm accountable to that. I will stand before God who is a just God, and I can't be perfect, but I surely have to remember that I serve a God who's an authority over me, and I will never evade God's justice. And I don't want to be a part of injustice. But we can't be like that, where we go around and think, well, he wouldn't mind. You should always think, when you think about God, maybe he would mind. He might mind if we see him as authority. 
I think it's important because God, if I tell you what, if I could warn the church about anything, there is one thing God does not like, and he does not like injustice. He's not a fan. And so we have to really evaluate ourselves. Are we contributing to injustice in any way? And, 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 and begin to fix that and change that. I don't want to be like these tenants. Verse 16, it says, he answers the question, what will he do to them? It says, he will come and destroy those tenants. But here's where the big, one of the most important overlooked pieces comes. And he says, and he will give the vineyard to others. He's not going to come in and destroy the vineyard. He's not going to wipe the vineyard off the uh, face of the earth. He is going to take those tenants who have proven themselves to be unjust and unworthy. He is going to remove them, and he is going to put in the others. Who are the others? We see it taking place in, in the book of Acts. That's where they start. The others are now in place. And the others are doing something very different. The others are not acting like these tenants. The others are serving people, helping people, spreading the gospel, putting their lives at risk for the son. Not killing the son. And they are out there, out there, and out there to all of the world to share the good news. There is a new other that he put in charge. And I would say he, that is us too. We are tending to God's world and we are the other that he placed in charge. And we must steward that very, very well. We do not want to become like those other tenants. I, I think this is true. We can never forget who we work for. Never forget it. You can never get comfortable in our faith, and in, in even in, if you want to say religion, we can never get comfortable, ever, 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 ever. It will lead to a complacency that could ultimately lead you to an entitled tenant. You must never feel entitled in your faith and think that you deserve what you have. God has given you everything. It will keep the humility flowing. And you must never, ever, ever be self-righteous. It will instantly put you into the tenant category that God had to remove Right? We have to be ultimately laboring for God. He is the authority in our life. And we'll go on to read, and it says this. When they heard this, these, this, this, this uh, uh, the, tri the, the triad of like tradition, right? The ones who are the guardians of the temple, the authorities, and the people. But he, ultimately, when the authorities heard it, they said, surely not. Surely not will we be overthrown. Surely not. Not. But he looked directly at him, which maybe gave him a sign that he was speaking to them. That what then is written, and he quotes Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Meaning this, you think you're going to reject me, but actually I will become the cornerstone of which everything is built upon. But he says something else that's not in that psalm's. And he says in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What do you think that means? Jesus ultimately is saying here that the whole foundation will be built off of him as the cornerstone. And anyone who trips over Jesus, will, he will be a stumbling block to them. Anybody who can't take or it's just thinking they're going to subvert Jesus and subvert God and be their own authority, they will trip, they will stumble, and they will fall into pieces. But the second part's real weird to me, but then I started just really thinking about this and reflecting it, because I thought, well, they fell and they broke into pieces. What's this crushing part? And I kind of just wondered myself. Now, I read a ton about this, but I couldn't find this exact thought. But how I felt was, and anyone who decides they don't want to move will be crushed. There are those who are stumbling, they'll stumble over Jesus, and they'll wrestle with Jesus. And then there are those who say, I will not move, and they'll be crushed. Because it doesn't matter, there is the ultimate authority. He ultimately is the authority. It's inescapable. So Jesus goes on to prophesy about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, what's going to happen in the temple. He goes on to these things, and he goes on to talk about how he's going to right every wrong, right, if you continue to read some of these passages. And then he's going to bring justice, right, to everyone. But I, I think there's a question we should all ask when Jesus is going to bring justice, and there will be accountability when we think about 
power and authority and who is in authority. What side of injustice history do you want to be on? I think we should ask ourselves that question. What side of history of injustice do you want to be on? You don't have to answer. It's a serious one to ask yourself, though. What side of history do I want to be on? Because it doesn't seem to... uh, (laughs) When we stand before God... There seems to be a way he judges injustice and justice. Now, what side do I want to be on on that? And we might think, oh, I'll never oppress anyone like those tenants. I'm not like them. But here's some things that maybe to, to evaluate ourselves on. And I, I, I personally wrote this list for myself. So feel free to relate to any of the things of where injustice might be in me that I have to continue to work on. And maybe I'm confronted up against Christ and the truth, and I need to remove these. Judging others. You know, the Bible says that I am not allowed to judge you or to judge others. I'm allowed to judge myself. And so to go out and judge others and look down on others and and think we're better than others, I'm sorry, it's just a part of, it feels like an injustice in the way towards God's creation that we're not allowed to do. Looking away when God is telling you to look at something. Now, those who ruled at that time, there was a lot of looking away of the real problems because they were focused on themselves. Looking away is one. Not speaking up when speaking up is when it matters. Being able to stand up for what is right, especially for the kingdom. Self-survival is one of these other injustices, I think, that I have to make sure that I can't just be thinking about how I'm going to live and survive. I have to think of others. Spiritual dominance, like I'm so holy and you're so not. So let's make sure we establish this power dynamic now. We have to, we have to work on these types of things. Wrongful gain, manipulation, greed, and othering. These are all injustices. And I have to ask myself, what side of this history do I want to be on? Because God is a God about justice. He's a God of love, kindness, compassion. He's not a God of these other things. And so I am constantly being (laughs) uh, confronted by the cornerstone to begin to work on these areas in my life. I can choose to ignore it, but I don't want to. The Bible says that ultimately we are all accountable to this type of injustice, by the way. When we recognize the authority, hopefully then we'll realize that we work for God, but we are his co-laborers. So we are the new tenants now. We are co-laboring with God. And he is entrusting us with his greatest possession. How well are we tending to it? This last part of scripture, I'll read and then we'll end. In the whole mentality, this is in chapter 21, and this is directly to believers. So you're going to be a new tenant. You're going to be the others who took the spot, and you're going to be ones who are going to prove to be faithful. And if you're going to do that, Jesus wants to let you know just what you need to be aware of when you do it. And it's to take, ultimately, take heart. Because sin will always fight to bring you back into its power system. Sin will always fight and entice you if it has to, to get you away from what God has called you to do as a, as a good steward, good tenant. And ultimately, it will always try to destroy good laborers. <clears throat> I've heard this said that when a regime or a dynasty is at its very end, its last breath is when it will become the most violent because it's losing its grip. And I think it's true for the dominion of sin and the powers of this world that are losing to the kingdom and have lost, ultimately. Is there's this last death throw grip to try to pull people away from the kingdom. So you should be vigilant. Luke 21, 10 through 19, it says, Then he said to them, Nation will rise up against nation, still preaching on the steps of the temple, kingdom against kingdom, There will be great earthquakes and there will be various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terror and great signs from heaven. Now, this is in the future. This is something we don't know when or how, Jesus says. We don't understand exactly what this is speaking of. But we know that the the system itself, the world will ultimately turn in on itself. 
this power structure will only eat itself. This is unpredictable, and it's out of your hands. So you don't have to worry about this. Verse 12. But before all of this, they, meaning authorities, will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you. Now, this is a terrible motivational speech. It is. This is not great for recruitment, but this is no different from them, them than it is to us. They'll persecute you. They'll deliver you up to the synagogues and, prison, uh, and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. If you follow me, this, this is going to come your way. This is also out of your hands. It just follows you by following Christ. But something does come into our hands where we actually have something we can do. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, uh, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand to give an answer. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. When this tough time comes because you're standing for me, you will have an opportunity to be able to witness while you're being persecuted. Verse 15, it says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which means you're just going to have to rely on God. That's going to haul you out. Which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now this is in your hands. Your response to following God and feeling persecution. To standing up for what's right and feeling persecution. To fighting injustice and feeling persecution. Or we can just sit back and just stay out of it. But we're to go and fight and follow Christ the way he marched right towards that temple to where he saw the most injustice for God's people and said, this ends here. We have to be able to do this. And Jesus says, it's going to come your way, but I'm going to be with you. Verse 16, you will be delivered up by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. I bet you never heard that when you uh, were told how great Christianity was. How perfect your life will be from here on out. Jesus doesn't make that sales pitch. It's not. Part of, part of Christianity is you're going to face persecution. We're going to face difficulty. It will not be a perfect life and, and happy ever after. This is a life of, I think, essentially spiritual war. And spiritual war is ugly. And so he says you might even be delivered up for death, which does happen in the book of Acts. We'll read about it when we get into that study. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. This is the weird part. Wait, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to perish? Most people believe that Jesus was speaking in a sense of like this eternal life. You'll be harmed, but really you won't be harmed. You'll be beyond all of that. Verse 19, this is also in your hands. The persecution, all that stuff, out of your hands. It's painful to be a disciple, but it's out of your hands. But verse 19 is in our hands. It says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance. By you not giving up. By you not becoming complacent. By you not just turning away when God is saying, turn towards this. By you not just staying silent when God is calling you to speak for him. By you seeing the world is broken, that needs salvation, by you doing that, you will gain your lives. I read this in a commentary. I really liked it. It says, following Jesus always exposes the faithful to opposition from the authorities. It will always bring you into opposition from authorities. Following Jesus is a wonderful, crazy, risky, fulfilling life. And we are called to live into that for the kingdom's sake. But I think this is the best promise. I would say this, and I'll close and we'll bow our heads. No, never, never forget who has all authority. No matter what you're facing, Jesus didn't bat an eye when they're telling the creator of the world not to trespass. <laughs> he, he has all authority. And he says he's entrusted it to you. He doesn't bat an eye at it. And nor should you. 
We are called to remember that God is in authority at all times and all places. So when you want to fear man or mankind or people, don't. God's in authority. We can put our trust in others or we can put it in God. We can put our trust only in ourselves or we can put it in God. God is ultimately in authority. At the end of the day, we always want to hear the words that Paul said he wants to hear was, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. You finished the race. You completed the task. And I, and I think this is true. Don't fear man. I'm going to quote Jesus directly. Don't fear mankind and the authorities all around us. Fear the ultimate authority, Jesus says, who actually can determine your eternity. Fear that authority. That's worth being in awe of or irreverence of or in submission to or uh, 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 being willing to bend to that authority, not the temporal authority that we see all around us. Let's bow our heads. God, we, we come to you, God, as uh, a, a people who want to follow you, Jesus, who want to follow your path, who know that wherever you went, life and light just grew. And God, that sometimes, yes, good things aren't always loved by the world. It doesn't benefit sometimes, God, the authority systems. And God, ultimately, sometimes in ourselves, it doesn't do us good to do right. But God, I ask that that cornerstone, that, that, that piece that all things are built off of you, Christ, comes into conflict with that part of us that wants to subvert your authority, God, and place ourselves on the throne or to do for ourselves more than we would for you. And God, I ask that you also just give us the courage to be very bright, unashamed, fearless believers against injustice in ourselves that we do and in the world, God. That we see injustice and we notice it like a fireman to a fire, God. That we must go. We must be there. That's where we belong. And so, God, I ask that you just give us that courage and encourage us. And we know that you'll give us the words at the right time that people will not be able to contradict like you promise. We love you. We thank you, God. It's a privilege to be a Christian. It's a privilege to be a follower of you. And Jesus, thank you for leading the way, showing us the way, and speaking boldly for this world and God's children. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me this last song?